0: All right, welcome back to our next edition of uh, the Lobby Sounds of the Session, where we're going to be talking to, profiling, and getting some input from some of the important policymakers that are going to be making an impact in the upcoming legislative session. And we are pleased today to be joined with the State Superintendent of Education, Cade Brumley. Um, for those that don't know Cade, he's been on the job, geez, about the same time we've been in the pandemic, unfortunately, about a year and a half, I to guess, two years? <laughs> Feels like ten Decade. years. Decade. <laughs> Decade. Um, But, um, you know, Cade's got an interesting background to this role. He's been a successful superintendent at an urban parish in Jefferson Parish. Um, He's also been a successful superintendent in a more rural parish in DeSoto Parish and has great success in both those stops. Um, Obviously, a a well-liked, smart educator, but also, I just recently learned, an avid marathoner. And he uses some of that skill set and interest to uh, not just stay in shape and keep his body healthy, but also raise some money for some good causes. Uh, Cade, welcome. And let's go ahead and start with uh, a little background on that, if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, thanks for uh, having me. Look forward to the conversation. I am a slow marathoner, <laughs> but but don't dare call me a jogger. I am a runner, my friend. So what is the difference if you are a running person? If I called you a jogger, what what is that? I think that's just insensitive to call me a, a jogger. <laughs> so no matter how slow I am, I'm I'm always going to be a runner. We'll call you. How about a sprinter? Is that better? Is that is that, that would be insensitive to people who actually were sprinters. All right. Well, we'll go
0: with marathoner. We'll just stick That'll with work. what we know. We
1: Unfortunately, with with COVID, like everything else, that you know, you you really don't have a space for marathons right now yeah Um, hopefully some of that's coming back I just participated in the uh, Baton Rouge or Louisiana half a couple of weeks ago and that was my first event in you know probably over a year oh wow and talk about some of the the causes
0: you've raised money for I think I find that an interesting part of your uh, marathoning uh, experience
1: yeah that's that's one of the things that that I've chosen to do just as community service people do their own thing to uh, bring support to certain organizations raise awareness and for me um, you know, I've always uh, used Marathon as an opportunity to raise money for things like St. Jude, uh, the ALS Association, Wounded Warrior Project, uh, and have raised, you know, over, over $25,000 uh, awesome. to support organizations like that. I uh, have always funded all of my own expenses, so every dollar goes directly to the organization that I am that choosing to support.
0: That's awesome. Um, that says a lot about you and, and putting uh, others first when you're trying just to stay in shape the whole time, so that's good.
1: Well, there's there's been opportunities to, to go and, and share with students information about these organizations. Yeah. You know, ALS is a terrible, terrible, awful disease, and hopefully yeah. we'll be able to find a cure for that. Uh, everyone can get behind research for, for cancer with St. Jude's, and Wounded Warrior Project, we all want to support our veterans, but students and sometimes employees don't have information about these things. And so it's been a great opportunity to raise awareness for those things.
0: Fantastic. Um, Well, let's let's pivot to another marathon I guess you're on right now, which is the education of Louisiana's children. You know, it's not uh, something that doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long, steady pace to get that done the right way. Um, Let's get right into, I think, the issue that's on most people's minds. I mean, obviously the last year and a half has been very challenging. The good news is as you look towards other states – um, you know, you've done a great job of getting us in person. You know, virt- uh, learning sooner rather than other states. Um, other states depending on virtual a lot longer. So there is some good stories to tell, but we know there's going to be some learning loss. Well Walk a little bit about how you see that issue and what are some of the steps you think Louisiana as a state and your department can take to try to uh, address that learning loss as much as possible.
1: Well, you know, the CDC put out guidance a few weeks back on how to open in school, and uh, what was really affirming to us is seeing that it looks like they copied our playbook. You know, we we put out guidance last summer on the the way to safely reopen stools in concert with our medical experts, and... uh, in fact, last week, American Enterprise Institute, which I shared with you, which is yeah. you know, certainly a conservative organization, right. um, said that Louisiana had the eighth most aggressive uh, school reopening plan in the nation. Yeah, those and, rankings were impressive. Yeah, and we, and we had the fifth greatest percentage of our kids who were in daily face-to-face instruction. And today across our state, we have over 70% of kids in, in face-to-face instruction, which I think is good. Um, but also we've come a long way in terms of virtual instruction. You know, we, we finally have more devices than kids in our state. Uh, we have, uh, we're in a better position to be able to offer instruction virtually. But for me, as I've said from the beginning, there's not a substitute for face-to-face instruction. And so that's where we want to be as much as we possibly can be. Um, if we can safely do that. Now, your question is learning recovery and, you know, we're not, we're not certain exactly what that loss may look like. Uh, but we feel like we're going to be in a better position than many other states mm-hmm. around this. Uh, this is one of the reasons why we've indicated that, you know, going ahead and going through with our state assessment series this spring is going to be really important. Uh, the LEAP test uh, in, specifically because we haven't had those in about two years. And so it's it's really our only way in a, in a real uh, standardized environment for us to know where our kids are. Uh, and I think that's really important. I think it's also important that our public knows where our kids are, um, because if we don't know, then we can't make policy decisions around that. We can't make resource allocation decisions. Um, and first and foremost, we can't make um, instructional decisions. So it's really important that we, we have that uh, and we know where our kids are.
0: And I want to con- commend you and the Bessie members for making that decision, for, for the, seeing the need to go forward to do assessments right now. Um, I think we, whether you're a family, whether you're a parent, whether you're a policymaker, needs to know the state of existence. And look, maybe those assessments will show good news. Maybe the loss isn't there or, or, or is less than we, than we think. We have to prepare for the worst, right? Uh, and so that's what we're, we're hoping to, to not see it, but be prepared if it does show.
1: Yeah, and I, I think we have done a good job and our, our board has done a good job of making reasonable flexibilities along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, even with things like teacher observation, you know, law requires you to have two in a year. You know, we've said if the first one this year is satisfactory, the principal doesn't have to do a second one because Mm -hmm. they have so many other things to be worried about this year and need to be able to support their teachers in most need. Or uh, some of the most negative labels that can be applied to schools, um, you know, we're saying this year we're not going to apply those labels such as, you know, comprehensive comprehensive intervention needed or required. Um, We've also made some flexibilities around seniors for this year. So I think that our board has done a really good job of making reasonable flexibilities um, across the year. But at the same time, they have supported uh, the idea that our kids need to test. And I appreciate that. And I further appreciate the idea that we need a public reporting of that.
0: Yeah. And from what I've heard from others, everyone understands the need for some temporary flexibility uh, and some of the impact of that. But very glad that information is getting out there. So let's talk about the uh, the the adult side of the equation, the faculty. Um, You know, um, what is your what what is how do you assess the state of those inside the school system that have been working through this last year? Um, And one side part of that question, you know, vaccine rollout is starting all across the state. What are you seeing and hearing from local schools, as well uh, as whether our teachers getting the vaccine? Are they interested? Are they are still trying to get comfortable with it? What, what's your What's your assessment there?
1: Yeah. So I mean. Education is a, is a passionate topic, and, and Louisiana education has often put people in different corners of the room based based on their beliefs. And what I can say about this year more than anything that's really inspiring to me is that we have been able, as an educational community across the state, is to you know keep it between the lines and keep it moving forward. And you look at other states and other cities, and, and they're not doing that, and we've managed to do that. So I, I think our teachers and our leaders have, have put themselves uh, in a really good light across the state this year for their willingness to to go back to work, uh, to be there for their kids, uh, and I'm thankful for that. We, you know, we also advocated very early on um, for vaccine access for individuals in early childcare centers, birth to four, but also our pre K-12 community. Um, we saw about 35 to 45 percent of our um, educators early on who desired access to the vaccine, but as uh, some of the hesitancy wanes on that, we're seeing more of our educators who are wanting access to the vaccine.
0: That's well, good. Um, and, and we're partnering for editorial note, I guess you'd say, we're partnering with the Department of Health right now to try to um, encourage folks to take a good look, get educated on that and, and make a smart decision, but hopefully see the value in, in getting vaccinated so we can get herd immunity and get our economy open uh, as soon as we can. One other side note, you, you mentioned getting back in earlier as compared to other states. Uh, just this weekend we had uh, some friends from DC come in and visit us that we haven't seen in years and their son is looking at LSU so he's torn LSU today and they told us that they live in Virginia and they just went back to in-person instruction under 2 weeks ago yeah. so the entire time they've been home virtual and if you're a working parent trying to you know juggle all that it's a huge challenge and they kind of told us some of those challenges so Again, kudos for for making it a priority to get back in the classroom as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, the the other side of that, and this is what many people don't realize about our agency. You know, most people think of us and they think K-12. We actually oversee, you know, uh, birth through 12. So we're responsible for oversight over all the early child care centers across the state. And at the height of the pandemic, we only had 27% of those open. So March or April, we had about 27% of early child care centers open. And, you know, if if they're not open, the economy stalls out because families can't go back to work. Uh, They have to have a place for their child. And so as of today, we have 99% of those centers across the state open, and that's over 1,000 centers.
0: Well, that's huge for those children. Also, the parents who oftentimes use that as a way to get to work uh, and be able to juggle their lifestyle. So that's great to hear. Let's talk about early education. Obviously, it's going to be a hot topic this session. There's a lot of ideas on how best to support it. I think it's, it's um, you know, whether it's, it's in the policy aspect, but also in the funding aspect. You know, what's your thoughts on, I guess, where you see the legislative session going, but also what, what do you think is the biggest need and opportunity to make sure early education uh, even hits that next level here in Louisiana.
1: Yeah, well, for me, I've, I've consistently shared that I think that, you know, early childhood education, birth to four, is the greatest educational challenge of our generation. Now, how we solve that, certainly up to debate, and different people have different opinions on how to solve that. But, you know, right now across Louisiana, only 40% of kids come to school on day one with the skills necessary to be successful, 40%. That's an amazing uh, so, stat. Yeah. You know, I want
0: people to, to hear that 40% of kids in Louisiana show up on day one in kindergarten. That's right.
1: Wow. Mm -hmm. And and whenever you're looking at some of our most impoverished communities, you know, we have 90 percent of kids who are showing up on day one that aren't ready with those basic skills to be successful uh, on day one. And so, you know, this is this is a space birth to four where we we have to think through this and and we have to make sure that we have access to seats uh, and we have to make sure that those are quality seats. So, you know, we have to be walking and chewing gum at the same time. Uh, we are getting an infusion of dollars from the federal government with, with the stimulus. Some of that is designated to early childhood education. And so what, what, what we are thinking about and how we're thinking through this is, you know, how can we, how can we use these funds to make sure that we are uh, shoring up and further stabilizing an industry that has really been under attack? Um, their margins are not great to begin with, so we need to do that. But we also are looking at this in, in a way that um, tries to provide a bridge to the future, uh, to buy Louisiana a few additional years to think through a long-term strategy around early childhood education, because I, I tend to believe we're not going to see that that fundamental root transformation within our communities, our region, and our state unless we can do better than having forty percent of our kids ready on day one for kindergarten.
0: Absolutely. So um, let's talk about that. That the money coming in. You mentioned the federal funding coming in. Obviously, there's an opportunity there, but there's also an unknown. Um, Many people ask us, like, where exactly do those dollars go? What exactly do they be used for? I don't know if I know the answer to all of that. So what, what is your understanding of how those dollars will be used? Do you have the tools you would like to see so that you could have the accountability to make sure that at the local level they are spent um, in the direction that you think is best? What is the state of your ability to have oversight and accountability on those dollars as they flow through to the districts?
1: Yeah, so look, this this is a complicated question and, and you have various buckets of dollars over various appropriations of dollars. So you, you really have early childhood funds, uh, you have your pre-K-12 funds, and then you have GEARS funds, which is, you know, gives the governor some level of oversight or, or decision making on how those funds are, are, are utilized. Um, when we're talking about the, the pre-K-12 funds, 90% of those dollars have to directly flow to the systems. And the state agency nor the state board can tell those systems or mandate how those funds be utilized.
0: 90% you said? 90% of the dollars go directly to directly the locals to without the state or the superintendent having much input That's on right.
1: that. That's right. Well, and but what I will share about that is that, you know, we have, we have tried to be on the front end of this and conversation and networking and and using our agency and, and relationships to try and help people think through the best usage uh, of these funds. Uh, and so we're seeing that. Uh, we're also trying to put out guidance on, uh, you know, potential investments with these dollars uh, so that they they have a, a resource to be able to look through this and better understand what would be some good usages of the dollars. Uh, and the other thing that we intend to do as a state agency from a public trans, um, transparency standpoint is to say, okay, here are the buckets in which systems utilize these funds. And so if a taxpayer wants to go in and look at any individual district or parish, they can go in, click on that, and see where their system used their dollars.
0: And roughly how much? I mean, not not to quiz on the exact penny. How how much are we talking about flowing down to the – 90% of what number is going down
1: to the – Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an incredible infusion of resource. That's why it's also an incredible opportunity. But – if you look at the, the three different allocations from, say, last March from this past December and then the newest ap- appropriation, you're talking around, you know, $4 billion wow. with a B. Over of, what, you, what time frame? Well, the, you have until, well, it, the, the initial allocation was made in the spring, spring of 2020 uh, with CARES. Uh, and then there was a new allocation in December. Uh, and then there was a, the newest allocation in the American Rescue or Recovery Act in, in March Um, And so those funds have to be utilized by, I think, September of 2023. Um, And so we are trying to do our best with that funding to put out in front of systems really forward-thinking ideas uh, on how that can be used. But we can't mandate those things so long as they're within the federal allowabilities.
0: Well, I I know I can tell you on behalf of a lot of the members we're talking to and businesses out there, um, the need for those dollars to go for things that truly move the needle for children development, um, there's a lot of support for that. And um, if, if, if our side, if the business community can be help of you to make sure that that accountability is there, just let us know. So there's a lot of people who, who recognize that this is a unique opportunity. And if those dollars are squandered, you know, it's really going to be the children of this state who are going to be the ones suffering for that. So we're, we're here to help to make sure that those every dollar that's being spent as accountable as possible. Um, and if that means even changing some of the laws in the legislature to make sure you have oversight and accountability, I bet there'd be interest there as well on our
1: side. A very real example, um, I mean, there there are so many very real examples, but one I'll, I'll bring to the table today is just, you, you know, multiple agencies have been chasing around broadband. So K-12 has been chasing broadband, higher ed, uh, the Department of Health, and, and so many agencies and, and interest and organizations have been chasing broadband. Across Louisiana today, we still have 25% of kids in their homes that even if their parents could afford the internet, they don't have the infrastructure to have internet, so one of the things that we have done with some of our state agencies set aside from the stimulus dollars is we have funded the state's first broadband office. Um, it was legislatively approved um, last session, but it was not uh, funded. Uh, so what we said is, you know, all these multiple agencies chasing broadband, we need one unit that is coordinating this effort. And so we're using some of our state agencies set aside funds from the stimulus And we have funded a three-year commitment for the state's broadband office. And so the Department of of Education is funding the state broadband office for the next three years so that maybe the the infrastructure that we need throughout the state to supply high-quality internet for K-12, for higher ed, and for the workforce, uh, that we're able to put that in a better position.
0: And is that the same office that Venith
1: is coming in and running? Okay. That's right. So Venith's that, office, yeah. we're funding that office.
0: Okay. Well, Venith is a, a, a person that we know well and has a good track record of working with everyone to get the job done. So that, that's a good development, that sounds like. And if it's focused on education... I think that's critical. You know, if if we're going to be, you know, finding the gaps in our broadband development and finding ways to to move the needle, you want to prioritize those students that are trying to learn remotely uh, as a way to do it. That's fantastic.
1: Another example that's really um, relevant right now is just thinking through summer programming. So, you know, we have asked systems across the state to um, develop, and and we have put out guidance on this, but to to develop a really robust uh, summer program this year for kids. Um, you know, for, for years, educators have talked about what they would like for their summer program to look like, but they couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. And so now is that opportunity. And, you know, we've talked a lot about the fact that, you know, kids have lost out more than just on reading and math over the last year. They've lost out on music and art and PE and uh, socialization. And so uh, we are asking systems to think about summer programming more of a camp feel, uh, opportunities where kids want to come to to school every day, not the old boring summer school model, mm-hmm. uh, but but where families have the opportunity for full day programming, where they're not having to figure out, okay, it's lunchtime, how do I go pick up my kid, uh, but where they have full day options to have these electives, but also they're being pulled out uh, into small group small group tutoring, uh, maybe one on one, maybe one on three or four. Uh, where they're getting core content instruction. And and whenever we're thinking about that tutoring, whether it's in reading or math or science or social studies, we're not thinking about, you know, 100% of the time being in remediation uh, because you can get stuck in a in a cycle of remediation and you never give a kid access to on-grade level content. And so what we are asking systems to think about is, you know, in those small group tutoring sessions, let's go ahead and pre-teach. Let's go ahead and expose kids to what they're going to be seeing next year so they have a leg up whenever they see it next year. It won't be the first time.
0: Well, I, I notice uh, as you describe a lot of these, you know, wise initiatives, there's the word asking and encouraging in there because, you know, at the end of the day, local districts have to be, make local decisions, and, and they have to be led by local strong leaders. Um, but, but just know it, it, it's critical that, you know you, you know, you have the bully pulpit. You have folks out there who want to help with that. We need to make sure that, that smart local decisions are being made by adults at the local level because there's tremendous opportunity. There's good programs in the pipeline. There's plenty of money coming through. The excuse train is kind of running out, and so um, it's imperative that local leaders step up and, 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 and lead by example um, um, in this opportunity. Let's walk on another end of the spectrum. We've talked a lot about early ed and all that, but I know um, uh, fast forward uh, has been a huge issue that you brought up. You have rightly recognized that at the end of the high school career, you've got students who are in the junior, senior level, and they've got capacity for additional classes to, that can prepare them for the workforce or for college. Walk through how that's going from your perspective.
1: Yeah, we're, we're really excited about this. Look, I I have thought about this issue as a as a local level superintendent, both in a rural setting and an urban setting, and I've and thought about, you know, I, I feel like I can do more for kids, but I have some systemic uh, structural barriers that are preventing me from, from readying a student uh, the day after graduation. And so in, in my mind, I, I wanted to, to break down or eliminate those barriers. So if a student graduates on May 15th, on, on May 16th, they have been deliberately connected to what's next for them. And so the, the fast forward initiative right now is asking um, systems to plan with community colleges or plan with four-year universities or organizations that do credentialing or apprenticeships. And it's saying everything that happens during that junior and senior year of high school um, that presently happens, it, it doesn't have to happen. And it can be replaced with something else. So the idea would be, you know, here in, in Baton Rouge, for instance, you may have a partnership with the East Baton Rouge school system and, you know, Baton Rouge Community College. And they might say junior and senior year is actually going to be the coursework of an associate's degree. And so that student would would graduate on May 15th and they would be duly degreed uh, both with that high school degree and that associate's degree where they could go to work. Or it might be those first two years of a four year university or it, or it could be something completely outside the box. And it could be maybe year one and year two of an apprenticeship in a, in a skills, in a skills craft. And we think this opportunity, once it, you know, scales out past the early adopters uh, has the potential to change the landscape in our state in a, in a very positive way, because, you know, we have to further personalize the high school experience. We have to be deliberate in thinking about what does the day after graduation look like for a student? And have we prepared them for that? Really? I mean, we, we can offer them, Four, four years' worth of courses, but if we really prepared them for what does the day after graduation look like, and, and that's what we're trying to do with this opportunity, and it, it's, it's going to, to take pushing up against some of the status quo opportunities that have happened in the past to think about more 21st century opportunities uh, for these students.
0: Well, we are joined here today in the Lamar Advertising Studios by Jalen, who's a Christo Ray senior, who pretty soon will be having some of those same decisions waiting for her, what's next after high school. So maybe we'll talk to her at a future recording and see what her ideas are on that. But putting those options out there, opening the eyes of, of students in that late high school career. I know, you know many of us, when we, when we were younger, you leave high school, you went to college, you basically you show up on day one and say, now what do I do that I'm here? We can start that dialogue and that training and, and that curriculum earlier in high school so they make more informed decisions for the next steps. I think it's better for the families and better for our local economy. So we've covered a lot of ground here, and so I don't want to keep you too long. I know you're busy. It, your schedule is busy. So let's end with kind of this last lighthearted question. We started with um, your marathoning experience, and you're, you're an avid marathoner. So every marathon, I'm assuming, has a pretty robust play mix that they use whenever they, they're they're running down the road. So what is on the Cade-Brumley play mix? And, like, give me a couple examples. Like, you know, you're trying to keep your pace steady, so you want something kind of easy, but then you're dragging. So you need something to kind of get you going and really get your energy going. So give me a couple examples of what you got on the Cade-Brumley marathoning play mix.
1: <laughs> well... You know, I, that's that's funny. Um, <laughs> I wasn't prepared. Um, well, that's why I asked I, it because I, I figured you would. Yeah, no, <laughs> I am. I am. I really have an eclectic play mix. All like, right, I, let's I, go there. I'll go. I'll go from anything from like some type of old school gospel. Yeah. Uh, to right. some type of rock. To some type of you know 1960s, 70 country country western song. So, really, I, I I love most all types of music. And on any given day, it can be any different thing that I want to listen to
0: guess if you're running for three or four hours at a time, you got to have a lot in the play mix because you cover a lot of musical ground. So
1: I'll let you get away
0: with that dodge this time, but look, thanks for coming in. Um, thanks for what you're doing each and every day. And look, it's a, it's a challenge, but there's a lot of opportunities here right now in the state of education. And so we're, we appreciate you there and um, enjoy the next uh, jog.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks for having me.
0: All right. Take care.